about the solar system? I'm told we have a terrific following throughout the Milky Way. I don't exactly know what the Milky Way is, but we'll try to figure that out. By the way, we're in syndication. We're starting to syndicate around the country, too, which is very cool. It's going to take a while to get there. Uh, in the old days, in another thing called WABC Radio, we were in about 185 cities. We're gaining on it. But the live streaming is the key, wabcradio.com. So we've got really two big, large, breaking stories uh, today. Uh, maybe two and a half. We'll get to the half before. One of them is this incredible outbreak yesterday. It really kind of started yesterday afternoon. I'm over at Fox, you know, prepping for my show, Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. on Fox Business. Uh, it's been a great success. You listeners and viewers have made it a great success. But all of a sudden, the war drums are beating inside the Biden administration. I mean, it's really kind of interesting. These guys are the peaceniks. They're the doves. They've been pushed around by Vladimir Putin for months and months and months now, afraid of their own shadow, will not make any definitive sanctions, which is what they should have done in the first place. And all of a sudden, Tony Blinken and Secretary of State Blinken is in Australia, Melbourne, and he's talking about uh, warning of Russian aggression, new Russian forces on the Ukraine border, and telling Americans... American citizens, that they should leave Ukraine what right away. Right away. By the way, on that point, this morning, I'm just looking at the Wall Street Journal website. I mean, I can't confirm any of this. I'm just acting like a reporter now. Uh, the Wall Street Journal website, uh, the United States continues to urge its citizens to leave uh, the Ukraine, particularly Kiev. They've already put out a warning uh, to get out of the U.S. embassy. But today, for the first time, Russia is telling its people to get out of the embassy and the city in in uh, Kiev and also on the east part, on the Donbass part. So that's new information from the Russian side. We will have General Jack Keane on at the half hour. Uh, he is the best in the business for evaluating this stuff. I mean, he's the most brilliant man. He's a personal friend of mine and my mentor on all things um, national security, as he has been for many, many years. So then yesterday, okay, uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, comes into the White House press room, and he starts talking in greater detail. He basically says um, that there's likely invasion. It's imminent. Could probably happen during the Chinese Olympic Games. And he mentioned an escalation in the conflict, which will include Russian aerial bombings of Ukraine. I didn't say where, but Russian aerial bombings, I mean, eastern Ukraine is right next to, you know, right on the border of Russia. So he could, that's easy. They They don't have to lob cruise missiles into Donetsk and those, you know, regional capitals in the eastern part of the Ukraine. So I figure he met, I mean, I think it stands to reason. Let's see what uh, General Keene thinks. Kiev. They're going to start bombing Kiev. They're going to throw cruise missiles at Kiev. That is a big, you know, that ups the ante enormously. That's not just a false flag with some divisions or mercenaries. That's major 
out-and-out war. And that's, you know, big news. So we had, on the Kudlow show last night on Fox Business, uh, we had former director of national intelligence, my favorite spook, uh, John Ratcliffe, who walked through it. And then later in the show, we had General uh, Keene. And um, actually, General Keene is a guy who said that the, uh, dip- the diplomacy period is over. Diplomacy is over. They've been trying for six months. Again, weak need by, uh, Biden, uh, in my judgment. We should have slapped on the banking sanctions right away. We should have slapped, slapped on or, you know, restored the um, Nord Stream 2 pipeline sanctions. We never should have taken them off. Never. But uh, the Russians met with, let's see, France, Germany, Ukraine, Russia. I don't know, maybe some other Europeans. This is... Um, part of uh, the so-called Normandy framework, which was set up, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years ago when the Russians took Crimea. And basically it's the same stuff. Don't go into, you know, Russia doesn't want any of its former satellites to go into NATO. Obviously some has, a.k.a. Poland. I had dinner with, with the Polish ambassador to the U.N., I don't know, it must have been two Wednesdays. Yeah, this past week, Georgette Mosbacher, who was former U.S. ambassador to Poland, a dear heart and a friend of mine in the Trump administration, and I've known her for 30 years. Anyway, uh, you know, Poland is obviously furious at Russia. They're big supporters of the United States. Poland wants us to be even stronger. So uh, I don't know, obviously, how this is going to turn out. It sure reads like an invasion. And a nasty one. I think the Russian troop level on the east side of Ukraine is about up to about 150,000. Perhaps General Keene will update us on that. Remember, Putin has put troops in uh, Belarus, right, to the north of Ukraine. And that border runs very close to the city of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. I mean, um, it's really only a couple of miles. I don't know. It's 50 miles or something like that. I don't have my maps in front of me, but it's very close. And then, of course, um, Russia has bolstered its troops and ships and naval presence, you know, in that southern Black Sea area south of the Ukraine near Crimea uh, and that bridge that they want to build, permanent bridge. So they got them on all sides. So if they want to do it, they're going to do it. There ain't nothing we can do about it. Nothing. Zero. But... But, 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 and here's a point that General Keene made last night on the Kudlow show on Fox Business. I'm, I, I have been making it. Biden's talking to Putin today. We don't know when. We sure don't know what he's going to say. My fear is he doesn't know what he's going to say. He's fled up to Camp David. He ought to be in the Situation Room right, in the first floor of the west wing of the White House in that skiff, as somebody who sat in when I was National Economic Council Director for Donald Trump, I was a member of the National Security Council, lots and lots and lots of meetings in the skiff. It's completely soundproof and wireproof and cyber hacking proof, I suppose. That's where Biden should be with his entire team. Defense, state, 
CIA, all the uh, spook services, director of that. I mean, I didn't see them getting on the Marine One helicopter yesterday. I think somebody said to me that the, the chief of staff of the National Security Council was in Marine One. Well, that that's the chief of staff. That's fine. That's lovely. But what if it, why, why wasn't Sullivan in there? Why weren't they all in there? Why aren't they all heading for, I mean, they should be planning. This is a very serious thing. Now, we're not going to commit any troops, but you got to tell Putin, you know, you can't just push us around, although Biden has been pushed around. Biden should say at the beginning of the phone call, hello, Vladi. Hello, Vladi. Good to hear from you. Uh, I have some news. As of 12 noon today, we are imposing a sanction, a banking sanction, on the Russian Central Bank and the major Russian banks inside Russia. Henceforth, no financial transactions, no banking transactions will be cleared on the SWIFT system, which is the dollar-based global system for any transactions. You are out of the world financial system as of 12 noon today. No matter what you do. And then we'll talk. And oh, by the way, we're going to restore the pipeline sanctions as well. That should be his beginning. And he could say it in a very calm, pleasant voice. He should have done it months ago. Diplomacy is over. Putin has taken us, taken us to the cleaners with his false narrative. So let's take some action. We'll see what happens. i got to take a quick break. I'm in the studio today. It's very exciting. I'm back in the studio. The renovated WABC, John Katsimatidis, my dear friend, Memorial Studio. It's fun to be here. Get to meet the Brotherhood every now and then. Usually I broadcast from my home office in an undisclosed location. So I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I've got to talk about the other crisis that's dooming Biden's presidency, and that is inflation. Seven and a half percent inflation. Killing the middle class. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Never ending. And, and I want to advise you that the inflation spike is not only not ending, but it's going to go on for month after month after month after month throughout this year. The CPI that was released this past week, year-to-year change was uh, 7.5%. Actually, the three-month change, the sort of short-term trend is 8%. So when the three-month is faster than the 12-month, that tells you the trend line is not good. And across the board, this is not just a couple items. It's diffuse. Now, there are thousands of prices scored in the CPI. But all the major categories are showing these outsized increases. And here's the rub. It's not an academic issue. Uh, Some of the economists on Wall Street and elsewhere have calculated what the extra costs mean, you know, on energy, gasoline, natural gas, home heating oil, food, grocery shelves, housing, buying clothes, buying a new car, buying an old car. You know, they've calculated $250 
per month extra cost from the higher prices. And that's $3,000 per year. Okay, 250 times 12, $3,000 per year. Um, That was done by Moody's, which is usually a a lousy shop. It's usually a a Joe Biden left-wing shill. But in this case, they actually did some some good analysis. It wasn't Mark Zandi, who's the show man. And Zandi, by the way, is a nice guy. He's a friend of mine. He's just a left-wing show. Somebody else did it for Moody's, and they came up with the $250 times 12 is 3000 uh, I believe it was Wells Fargo, the bank, that also calculated that, frankly, the, the people that get hit the hardest of this inflation tax, which is what it is, right? It's a tax, uh, are the middle class are the middle class. Now, it doesn't mean that the upper end doesn't get hit. It does. But it's more affordable for them. And, and, and frankly, inflation is sometimes very good. I mean, inflation lowers the cost of debt. You know, these guys leverage debt into their investments. So the real cost is cheap because uh, interest rates are at zero or, you know, market rates are at almost 2% in the treasury market, the inflation rate seven and a half, so it's a negative real rate. But the middle class relies on gasoline. It relies on new and used cars. Turns out, you know, pre-owned cars are very important. It relies on, uh, you know, middle-class type apartments and homes. Uh, relies on groceries on the shelves across the board, buying clothes for the kids, I mean, the Walmarts of the world, the Costcos of the world are jacking up their prices. So we're all feeling it. So it's a big tax, and it's the number one issue in America. Now, I wonder out loud, I'm not asserting this. I'm not asserting this, but I will wonder out loud whether you have a wave the dog situation here. Remember that old movie? They went to war. This is a spoof on the Clinton years. They went to war to take eyes off of the bad domestic situation, which in those days was that Monica Lewinsky. I just wonder out loud. I'm not asserting it, but it just seems odd to me that a day after the CPI surged to 7.5%, front page news, the Bidens have no response to it, no action plan whatsoever. In fact, the president was cross he did an NBC interview, uh, Lester, 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 whatever his name is. He's not a bad reporter, by the way. What's Lester's name? Do we remember? Anybody know? Anyway, um, Lester had Biden, you know, in person, asked him about inflation. He said, he said, sir, you said earlier this year inflation is temporary. What's your definition of temporary? And, um, and Biden called him uh, a wise guy. <laughs> Call him a wise guy for asking the question. I mean, the Biden administration has been wrong about inflation all year long. By the way, the last months of the Trump administration, the inflation rate was one and a half percent. So a little more than a year later today, the inflation rate is seven and a half percent and rising. Okay, Two quick reasons for this. A nine hundred billion dollar spending rescue package in December of 2020 that we didn't need and a $1.9 trillion package in April of 2021 that we did not need. Both created massive government spending and excess demand. Plus, probably the bigger issue, 
the Federal Reserve Central Bank has been buying bonds. They've been buying the deficit spending. They buy it and injecting new money into the economy, creating new money. It's called M2. And we've had a record increase in M2. It's up 40% in the last two years. 40%. So it's 25% a year. The last 12 months is still up 13%. We've not seen this since the 1970s. That's why I'm going to have Phil Graham, former Senator Phil Graham, distinguished academic John Cochran, are all going to come in and weigh in on this. The Bidens don't know about the money supply. Jay Powell, the Fed chairman, dismisses the money supply as something that doesn't matter, hasn't mattered for 40 years. He is wrong. The concept comes from the great Nobel Prize winner, Milton Friedman, who was a free market, brilliant man. I knew Milton quite well. He was a mentor of some. Free markets, school choice, and monetarism. Money supply is the basis for rising inflation. And unless and until the Federal Reserve clamps down, your folks are going to have higher and higher inflation. How high? How rapid? I don't know. But I will give you a range. In the next 12 months, the range is 7 to 10%. It is not 2%. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, who used to be a pretty decent Fed chair. She's come over and she's been overtaken by all these crazy left-wing woke radicals. So she's drinking the Kool-Aid and she says the inflation rate by the end of the year is 2%. And with all due respect, I know Ms. Yellen, she's nuts. Can't happen. So we're going to talk about that. That's the real crisis in this country is inflation. It will bring down Biden's presidency. It is ruining the middle class. I'm Larry Kudlow. I hear the music in the background. It's great fun. We'll be back with General Keene on the war. And then after that, we're going to talk about inflation. Please hang with us. Here's my mission. Here's my mission. Save America. Kill inflation. Kudlow, we turn our attention to this uh, Russian-Ukraine story, which, of course, includes the United States. And we bring in General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman, Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst, presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. I was in the room when he got it. He is my longtime friend and mentor on all things national security. Uh, general Keane, sir, welcome back. Um, there's a headline on the Wall Street Journal website. You may have seen it. Um, yes, the United States is evacuating from Kiev, but the Russians are evacuating from Kiev and some of the other cities in the eastern part of the Ukraine. Uh, don't know if you saw it, but what do you make of it? Well, certainly. I mean, the, the drumbeat of war is, is beating stronger for sure. Um, I don't think yet the, the Russians have moved their troops into assembly areas, which would mean, you know, an attack is really a couple of days uh, in the offing. Many of those organizations, from what I understand, are still organized, as we have seen, um, in motorpool-like organizations, except for what's going on in Belarus, where there's an exercise going on. Uh, But yes, I mean, certainly we're closer than we have been, for sure. Uh, I've always believed from the outset, Larry, that what Putin was really all about with this intimidation that began back in March and April, and then he returned after the surrender in Afghanistan, I think largely because he saw it as a huge opportunity, thinking that uh, 
that NATO is much weaker as a re- result of the withdrawal and surrender in Afghanistan to our enemy. And, and there's the United States as well. And there's serious, you know, political and social divisions in, in Europe and, and in the United States. And he, he saw an opportunity, I think, to get some significant concessions here. But he hasn't got any concessions. And I'll tell you what, I, we got to give some credit to Zelensky here. I mean, they just finished nine hours of negotiations with the Russians yesterday, hosted by the French and, and the Germans in Berlin. And Zelensky's negotiators didn't give up one iota here. I mean, they, what the Russians want from him is that eastern Ukraine territory to be autonomous, where he no longer has control over it. And he has been unrelenting in not giving that up. And secondly, you know, he's held his population together. He hasn't let him panic under this. As a matter of fact, he's he's tried to counsel the United States is don't over don't overstate this. Don't overdo it. Hmm. And he's uh, counseled our president. Remember, when the president seemed to OK a minor incursion uh, as opposed to a, an overwhelming attack. And Zelensky publicly wirebrushed our president over that. Hmm. So he's steadfast here. And and I think, you know, if Putin could be overreaching in a sense, because he, if he does invade, the, the Ukrainians are going to be so much more anti-Russian than they even now, are now. NATO, even despite its differences, Larry, NATO will likely in the near term be stronger as a result of a military incursion. Uh, in Ukraine, so close to the NATO aligned countries. And then, and you know full well, uh, unless Biden doesn't do what he says he's going to do, when we pull that economic trigger dealing with his banks and foreign investments, uh, he'll pay a price, you know, for this. Uh, So this is not complete win-win for Putin. There's risk involved here for him uh, in what he's doing and going forward. If, if Biden pulls the economic banking sanctions trigger. If you told you told us last night on the Kudlow show, uh, Fox Business News, you said, um, and I loved it. A chill went down my spine when you said this. That when Putin speaks to uh, when Biden speaks to Putin today, whenever that's going to be, that the first thing he should do is inform him that the United States is imposing banking sanctions. And I know how to do this because I worked with Mnuchin and O'Brien and Pompeo in the Trump administration. We did it to Iran and we did it to some other places. We know how to, the United States knows the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve has all of the facilities in place, General Keene, to uh, take any uh, country out of the U.S. dollar-based transaction system, which is to say 90% of the world's transactions, right. uh, 90%. China is a pittance in this because they have capital controls, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you said, I agreed. As I say, when you said that, it was like a jolt to me. That's the first thing Biden should tell Putin today. But will he do it? No. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Don't, think he, I yeah. don't think he will do it. I mean, his, you know, I give him credit for being rhetorically strong in saying that we are not giving up Ukraine. If they want to come into NATO, we'll consider that at a point when they're qualified. It may be several years from now. And we're not going to give up the fact that if other nations want to join NATO, uh, if they're qualified, we, we may take them. And we're not going to move our forces out of NATO countries that are close to, to Russia. 
So that that is all good. But the, the flaw has been that he bases deterrence uh, in terms of preventing an invasion on something we would do after the invasion. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that is a very weak position. And here, if the Biden administration, and you heard Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, the tone of his voice, the seriousness of it, the sense of urgency he was expressing, if they believe that this invasion is in the near term in the offing here, then yes, let's let's go after Putin right now. We should have done it weeks ago, but just I mean, he he doesn't have the right to bring up 130,000 troops, even though it's it's his country and put those troops on the border of a sovereign nation and intimidate and coerce 40 million people and threatening them with their very livelihood and sovereignty. That that is something we should hold them accountable. We have complete justification to go punch him in the nose over something like that. And certainly at you uh, who know so much more about this than I do and what our economic impact would be in going after taking them out of out of the dollar banking system would be that would get his attention. I don't know why Sullivan didn't raise that in his presser in the White House uh, press room yesterday. I mean, going into the White House press room, as you know, General, uh, and holding, you know, 40, 45 minutes is a big deal. I've done it several times on the economy. A couple of times, former National Security Advisor John Bolton and I shared the podium, uh, you know, when we had um, foreign policy with an economic uh, with an economic angle to it. I mean, I'm just saying it's a big deal. I don't think, I don't know why Sullivan didn't even mention it. I don't know why Sullivan didn't say, for example, and I know this to be the case, General, that um, there has already been preparations made, that the Treasury Department has already been in contact with not only American banks, all our big banks, but also with the European banks. We have already made contact. And as I said before, we we have the plumbing, if you will, the wiring uh, between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve, we know exactly how to do it. I don't know why he didn't just say that. You know, somebody's yeah. got us. I mean, at this point, the Nord Stream 2 sanctions, look, we should have done that at the very beginning, as you have said. I've said it, too. Sure. But yeah. in a sense, that's much minor, much more minor than cutting. You know, you take them you take them out of the world banking system, That that's a big hurt. That's a big hurt. Um, so I was disappointed that. And you, you know, said- and there's been a reluctance, Larry. Even, even when the the press has been uh, seeking from the president and also from the European Union and uh, NATO countries, when they asked him, "Well, what are the specific uh, massive economic sanctions that you're going to impose? Give us a sense of the the specifics." And the administration has refused, and so have uh, the Europeans, and and that. And, and that has been very frustrating. You, you wonder if, if you're absolutely convinced that you would do the worst thing possible economically, something we resisted doing in 2014 under the Obama administration. If you're committed to pull that trigger, tell them you're going to do it, because that is part of the deterrence, it would seem to me. Mm. But there's been this general reluctance to deal with it. Yes, sir. Let me just read you again, coming back to this announcement this morning. Uh, Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said Russia has decided on a, quote, certain optimization, end quote, of staffing at the Russian embassy in Kiev and its consulates in Kharkiv, 
Odessa and Lviv because it feared, quote, certain provocations by the Kiev regime or third nations, end quote. Uh, I, I, it just sounded to me like that's a warning. I mean, in a, in a sense, sir, that's the kind of warning I wish we'd be making. I mean, the implications of what she said is, who knows, they may go in whole, they may start bombing Kiev for all we know. I'm just saying that that's a provocation or a shot across the bow or a warning. You know, where, where are our shots across the bow? I guess that's what I'm asking you. Well, um, to explain a little bit more about that, their information operations that they are they are using right now are along the lines that she was suggesting, although she wasn't all that specific about it, and, and that is that the Ukrainians are getting ready to conduct an attack against the separatist forces in, in the east. Mm. And, of course, that's the provocation that he will use as some kind of justification for crossing into southeastern uh, Ukraine because the separatist forces will ask uh, for assistance, and there, and and this reduction in the embassy, um, I think, is part of that whole campaign to justify uh, an invasion because the Ukrainians are doing something that's provoking the invasion, which is a completely false, false narrative. Mm. But we don't have any shots across the bow, though, to get to be mm. frank about it, and we've we've squandered all but the opportunity. Yes, I I do agree. We put. Uh, significant sums of money in terms of lethal aid in there, Mm -hmm. but we've never given them the lethal aid that they truly need. The anti-tank weapon systems, just like President Trump did, Mm. uh, are very valuable, but they needed air defense systems against missiles. They needed air defense systems, shoulder-fired air defense systems against fighter aircraft, et cetera, at the tactical unit level, and we haven't given them any of that. The Baltics did give them some Stinger missiles with the United States approval, but the United States has never gone down that shopping list that the Ukrainian military has asked for, and there's more things on it uh, than than I'm just suggesting mm-hmm. here. We, we've done, I think we've done a minimal amount, because mm-hmm. if you, just t- take the logic of this, if, you, if you're saying to yourself, and three presidents have said this, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, that the United States is not going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine because it's not an aligned NATO country. And I I understand that. But what we are going to do is help the Ukrainians defend themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you take that predicate, help the the Ukrainians defend themselves, why don't we just go all in with that? Mm. Put more advisors in there to help them be trainers, particularly after the March uh, initial troop concentration in Ukraine. And certainly go down that shopping list in a very substantive way and give them an effective deterrence. And we've given them some help. I'm not suggesting we haven't, and that's a good thing. But it's not anywhere near the help that they really wanted. General Keene, let me just, I got to take a very brief commercial bake, break. And uh, if you would hang with us, we'll have you right back after that. We've got much more to do. Folks, I'm talking to General Jack Keene, retired four star general, uh, currently chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. He is, of course, a Fox News senior strategic analyst and a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. And I'm sure glad he's on our side. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman, Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst, and a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. Uh, Thanks for waiting General Keene, uh, on the Fox Business Show last night, you said that the um, 
the more to the extent the uh, period of diplomacy is over. And we never have enough time on TV. But I thought perhaps you'd expand on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that sort of the official diplomacy period it ended uh, yesterday after the nine-hour conference with Russia and Ukraine, um, and Germany and France uh, were there as the host for this, uh, with no future date set. Uh, certainly, there is a possibility they could get back together again, but it doesn't look like it. Uh, also, uh, in the last day or so, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov was very dismissive of the. Uh, foreign minister from the UK. Uh, he used uh, crude and rude terms to describe her. It's kind of a personal attack. Mm. It's something La- Lavrov, while he can talk tough in the past, um, he's never personalized it like that. And then Putin has waved off any visits from uh, uh, from foreign leaders. Um, and, and there were a couple scheduled. So I, I think, you know, Putin has got to the point where he suspects that he's not going to get the concessions that he thought he would get, and and certainly the drumbeat of war has increased, you know, as a result of it. Now, all that said, um, diplomacy is never completely over, even if once the invasion takes place, because mm-hmm. there'll be a diplomatic effort, obviously, to stop it and de-escalate. Uh, and certainly, Putin uh, could change his mind uh, on on what actually uh, what concessions he demanded and take something uh, considerably less than that uh, as a face saver. But yeah, I, I think the door pretty much closed uh, on diplomacy as we were watching it unfold over the last, you know, four to six, six weeks, because there's nothing in the offing Now Biden is talking to him. I'm sure Macron will talk to him uh, as well, but I, I don't expect much of anything to come come from those discussions. I don't think we're going to take action, as I suggested. Um, This is just trying to use more conversation to stop Putin from what he's what he's going to do. And I I don't think anything that Biden is going to say on that conversation will impact his actions. So when you look at it, step back, you had multiple phone calls or Zoom calls between the two leaders. You had multiple meetings uh, at the Secretary of State Foreign Minister level, Blinken and Lavrov. Lavrov gave Blinken a homework assignment, remember that? And then Blinken had to submit this long-term paper to him. Uh, you've had meetings at the deputies' levels, and it would just seem, you know, if the diplomatic period is over, uh, I can only conclude uh, that the Biden diplomacy efforts, which were never backed by any big bang actions, we never had any teeth in it. It was all talk that the Biden diplomacy failed. Now, if Putin comes across uh, into uh, Ukraine, uh, as it seems more likely now, um, yeah, I'm absolutely right. That is the conclusion. He, the Biden team made a strategic error in not using upfront actions to deter Putin and only using the threat of action right. after the invasion. Right. That, that will become a right, fundamental right, right. strategic mistake. Yes, sir. Absolutely. That's where we are. Yes, sir. Yeah. I, you know, that's where you've been. That's where I've been. That's where O'Brien was, too. I mean, he said the same thing. Uh, John, can I just ask you to expand? You mentioned that uh, I'm not sure I understood, but if uh, if war breaks out, 
of some kind that NATO might be strengthened? Yes, and the reason I say that is is that, listen, we all know that the Europeans have differences uh, among themselves and certainly differences when it comes to NATO. But this, this, what Putin is doing here certainly has got all of NATO's attention. And there's, there's no doubt about that. And if he does conduct the invasion, it'll, it'll, it will make NATO focus on the Russian threat in a way that we have never focused on it, despite uh, what took place in Georgia and despite what took place in 2014 in Ukraine. And, and that will be a plus to NATO. And I think Putin probably has that in his calculus. He's very much aware that Germany's soft on Russia. And so he takes advantage of that, as he did with Angela Merkel. And he's very much aware that uh, Macron wants to separate himself from the United States as much as possible and be a leader of European nations and not always be led around by the United States. But this will, this will minimize those differences and bring NATO closer together, an invasion right on NATO's border like this. Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And as always, General Jack Keane, I thank you for your analysis and your helping us out. I'm sure we're going to see you on the Fox show this coming week if anything breaks out. Thank you for your time, sir. Have a wonderful oh, weekend. Yeah. Always great talking to you and your audience. Larry, Good thank you. Yes, sir. All right, folks, we're going to wrap up. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now we're going to go to what I think is our main mission, which is save America, kill inflation. We have Senator Phil Graham and distinguished academic John Cochran coming up. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, in the last segment, or no, in my opening... Uh, I, I, I couldn't come up with the name because, you know, I'm elderly and somewhat infirm. But the um, NBC anchor was Lester Holt. Lester Holt was interviewing President Biden. And it was Lester Holt who asked him, he said, well, you said inflation was going to be temporary many months ago. What's the meaning of temporary? And Biden, instead of answering the question, said, well, something, you know, what did he say you're? You're making fun of me or you're jazzing me or you're mocking me or something. Anyway, Holt is a pretty good news anchor. I have nothing against Lester Holt. I've met him once or twice, and I apologize for not remembering his last name. Now, more importantly, we have with us Senator Phil Graham, a longtime senator from the great state of Texas, uh, an American Enterprise Institute visiting scholar, a dear friend of mine and a mentor of mine as well. So, Senator Graham, welcome on a Saturday, and it's good to nice of you to do this. Inflation is now running at a blistering pace. There is no end in sight. It's going to bring down the Biden administration, among God knows how many other things. But, um, Senator Graham, I wanted you written. I'm not going to leak this, but you wrote a memo to a number of very important people in Washington D.C. and The thrust of the memo is a spending pause and welfare reform is the key to solving inflation and the economy. And I love that. And I was hoping you would enlighten us and expand on that. Well, Larry, um, uh, first of all, in 2020 and 2021, the federal government was 
set to spend about 20% of GDP. And then with a pandemic shutdown and the explosion of pandemic spending in a 12-month period, rather than spending 20% of GDP, the federal government spent 40% of GDP. During that same period, uh, the number of people employed declined. The, um, the shutdown reduced employment and production on average during that 12-month period by about 7%. So in essence, stated in its simplest terms, you had a dollar twenty of demand chasing ninety three cents of goods and services when the Federal Reserve Bank had increased money at the fastest rate in the post war period, and then suddenly, remarkably, everybody is surprised when prices explode. So uh, the point of the uh, advice was we need to stop spending. We need a spending pause. You've got debate going on about a new s- stimulus. You've got debate going on about increasing appropriations by 16%. Mm. You've got a debate going on about bringing back this bill back better bill. Uh, I don't ever remember a bigger disconnect between what's happening in the world and what public policy debate is. Um, and uh, if we don't get control of spending, if we continue to spend more and more money, and if we continue a policy of paying people not to work, mm. uh, the combination is going to be uh, that this inflation is going to continue. Uh, and it's very painful to working people who are being affected by it. That's the welfare reform part. There's no workfare, yeah, no workfare left in welfare. Yeah. No, listen, we reformed aid to families with dependent children with President Clinton. It was a resounding success. Mm-hmm. We had a dramatic reduction in the number of people on the program. As I recall, it fell almost in half. And most of those people went to work, and they changed their lives. We need to bring that program back, and we need to apply it to every means-tested program for every able-bodied, work-age man or woman in America. Uh, I mean, this this, uh, secretary yelling nonsense about Modern supply-side economics is giving people things. Well, the point is, if you give people everything they had to work to get before, you shouldn't be shocked when people stop working. Mm. I love people don't work because they like working. I love this dollar twenty chasing ninety-three cents. I think that's a great way to put it, and I also. Uh, You know, the appropriations, no appropriations bills have been passed in the Senate. I think one or two may have gone through the House, Senator, but none come through the Senate. But from your your calculations, you and Mike Solon, uh, you mentioned it would raise things by 16 percent. 
uh, current services baseline, if they did pass this appropriations bill as it's um, intended, I guess I'd say, uh, it would raise the uh, federal debt by $2.3 trillion, to another $2.3 trillion. And God knows how many of those bonds the Federal Reserve will buy because the Fed's M.O. has been to enable and accommodate the federal spending. So you're saying let's go to a continuing resolution. A CR keeps us at the level of spending for the last year. Actually, it's the Trump level of spending, as I recall. Yeah. Well, the the you know, we we need to write a budget. We need to go through a normal appropriations process. Uh, but right now, a good fallback position is just to leave spending where it is and let's get through the spring, see where we are. Um, and uh, I do believe we need a spending pause. Mm. It's a great, that's a great point. I mean, it's a really important. How about this? Would you buy into this? A spending pause and make the Trump tax cuts permanent? Well, I think that ought to be a long-term policy that we should uh, try to uh, promote. You know, we've got all this discussion about a bill to make us competitive with China and all these proposals about new government spending. We're never going to be competitive with China by having government lead technology. We're going to be competitive the way we've always been with private sector incentives. And you give incentives by letting people keep more of what they earn. Mm-hmm. 16 Republicans in the Senate voted for it. At that point, it was a $250 billion bill. Not a single Republican in the House voted for it. Well, Kinzinger, but he's not a real Republican. But then it became a $350 billion. But, Phil, 16 Republicans, if I'm wrong, it was 18, voted for this bill, which essentially is we're going to out-China China. We're going to out-socialism their socialism. Well, I, it's uh, this idea that industrial policy uh, can be effective in making America competitive is so alien to our entire history. Uh, Government policy did not create the tech giants in America. Competition and innovation and private capital uh, created those giants. China, with industrial policy, is killing their high-tech industry. Mm -hmm. So now government is going to come in and tell the high-tech industry how to run their business? Give me a break. It's incredible to me. And it almost got under the radar screen. And then a few of us discovered it and then went after it. Uh, And I'm still going after it. And some of these Republican senators who voted for it should be ashamed of themselves. I'm not, you know, look, I've been a Republican. You know, I've worked in two Republican administrations. I've been a Republican advisor for 40 years. But, Phil, this is nonsense, utter nonsense at this point, too, given the inflation pressures. I mean, you've laid out the inflationary impact of government spending pretty damn well. And these guys go ahead and march towards a $250 billion bill, which in conference will probably go up, not down. Drive me crazy, Senator Graham. Well, it's uh, it's amazing to me how 
a billion dollars, which used to be a lot of money, is now rounding error. Right. A rounding error. Can you imagine that? Plus, 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 although it hasn't materialized yet, the White House is cooking up another COVID relief bill. We don't know how much that's going to be at least $100 billion. But, you know, they put up $100 billion, the House will get it, it'll be $300 billion, and the sky's the limit. Another, and COVID, really, now? I mean, come on. This is uh, well. Look, they anything to spend money is popular with this administration and popular with this Congress. And uh, you know they come up with ideas that just absolutely make no sense. Modern monetary theory. Don't worry about it. Just print the money you need. Mm. Modern supply side economics. Give people things, and they'll work more. No. And uh, then we're going to defeat the Chinese in global competition by adopting their economic system. Fabulous. Uh, they, they don't, their theories don't pass the last test. You know, it's important to say, look at ideas and say, does this really make sense? Uh, does this pass the last test? Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of things that are now being debated in Congress just don't pass the laugh test. Yes, sir. Senator Phil Graham, I hope your memo to the great and the near great is carefully read. And I'm going to, in an anonymous way, I'm going to push it. Spending pause and welfare reform. Yes, sir. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Give us a couple minutes. That's to Wendy. All right, folks, we're going to take a very quick break. And on the other side of the break, we're going to bring in one of America's most distinguished uh, economists, John Cochran, who's going to talk about the Federal Reserve money supply side of the inflation that uh, Senator Phil Graham talked about, overspending and uh, no more workfare. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Hang in loose. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And as I've been saying... The next mantra here is save America, kill inflation. We just heard from Senator Phil Graham about the spending aspect and the need for welfare reform. Uh, Workfare is so important. Welfare is not. uh, The reforms of the Bill Clinton era have gone by the by. Now we bring in John Cochran, who is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the author of the blog, called The Grumpy Economist. And, folks, it is a fabulous blog. It's a must-read. And John used to teach at the University of Chicago. So first of all, John Cochran, how are you? Thank you for coming on. I'm doing great, but you didn't tell me I had to follow Phil Graham. What a class act. You (laughs) You know, he is a longtime mentor of mine. But, look, you've been writing about the combined uh, inflationary impact of, A, federal spending, and, B, uh, Federal Reserve money supply creation. So we tackled the first part. Um, tell us your thoughts now on Fed policy, because I'm concerned, John. I don't want to be a total strict 100% monetarist, uh, but, 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 but inflation is, you know, everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. And I don't see the Fed 
you know, they're not shrinking the monetary base balance sheet. The money supply M2 is still growing at double digits. Um, and the Fed funds target is zero. So, like, what are they doing? Well, I think this time Phil is mostly right. Uh, this inflation really wasn't about money versus bonds. It was about the big, uh, whether you borrow money and send people checks or whether you print money and send people checks, it's going to have about the same effect. <clears throat> uh, of course, the surprising thing is no one in Washington wants to admit that, but, mm. uh, you know, send people about $5 trillion of checks, they spend it, no surprise inflation. Uh, the amazing thing is that completely surprised the Fed. <laughs> they had no idea that was going to come. Um, so their job is, is mostly about interest rates these days. Now they're... Um, very slow to react um, to uh, to what's going on with interest rates. I think they've been hoping it'll all go away and they don't have to uh, do their unpleasant job of trying to counteract this enormous fiscal stimulus, along with the welfare programs Phil mentioned are important, too. If you pay people not to work, they don't work. And that also leads to some of the inflation we got going on. So uh, bottom line, they're slowly waking up to raising interest rates, uh, which is the one thing they can do to try to counteract this. Uh, but it does seem awfully slow and an awfully rosy scenario that most of the inflation will go away on its own before they really have to get serious about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Janet Yellen says inflation will be at 2% by the end of the year. I, I have my doubts, big doubts. I was talking to Kevin Hassett yesterday. Um, he thinks the Fed should raise the Fed funds target rate, John, by 50 basis points in each of the next several meetings until – you see some evidence, either from the indexes, which tend to move slowly, uh, or let's say uh, commodity, broad-based commodity indexes, which have actually picking up steam, see them coming down. In other words, you keep raising 50 until you see some evidence that inflation is being pulled down. And actually, Jim Bullard, the president of St. Louis Fed, kind of hinted at 50 in March, uh, with his statements this past week. Uh, what are you thinking? Well, it depends on uh, what happens, as always. <laughs> I think that the 2% bit, they are counting on most of the inflation just going away on its own, so that the amount that they, the Fed, have to fight is much, much smaller. Uh, the general rule of thumb in economics is uh, it, for every one percentage point of inflation, eventually the Fed has to raise uh, the interest rates more than 1% in order to fight that inflation. Uh, so if you're talking about 50, 100 basis points, you know, if we have 7% inflation at the end of next year, the way we have it this year, you need interest rates to go up more than 7 if right. they're going to fight that. So basically, when they're talking about a couple percentage of interest rates, they think most of the 7 is going to just melt away on its own like the snow, uh, and they won't have to do that much fighting of it. We'll John Cochran, that lucky. Can, can you hang on? I'm running out of time. Can you stay... Sit for five you minutes bet. during an ad and come back on the other side. I'm here for you. Oh, you're great. I would really appreciate that. We're talking to John Cochran of the Grumpy Economist and Hoover Institution. I'm Larry Cudlow. We're going to take a quick break, and then Professor Cochran's going to come on and help us out some more. Thanks ever so much. I'm Cudlow. Save America. Kill inflation. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Save America. Kill inflation. I'm Larry Kudlow. On the line, we have uh, uh, Dr. John Cochran, who is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's the author of the blog, The Grumpy Economist, a terrific blog, folks. you got to stay with it. We all read it. Uh, and, John, thank you for staying over. Um, 
we ran out of time because <clears throat> it went long with Phil Graham, so we're going longer with you, and you're very kind on a Saturday morning. John, you were doing some rules of thumb on the Fed funds rate, the target rate, which is presently about zero, and it can't be zero if the inflation rate is 7.5%. Could you just kind of walk us through those rules of thumb? Absolutely. I mean, the key is if you want to uh, – well, when you borrow, you, you, but you pay an interest rate, but then if you have to pay it back with dollars that are worthless, it's like they're paying you even though it looks like you're paying them, right? So if you want to uh, cut down on inflation, eventually you got to raise the interest rate by more than the inflation rate to, to slow things down. But I'd say the, mo- the most important thing here, really, um, monetary policy isn't just about what you do today. It's, it's like military policy. It's about deterrence. Uh, if people expect inflation, we're going to have inflation. So the most important thing the Fed could be doing and really isn't is to make it clear that if inflation gets up and stays up, they're going to slam it. Mm. They would be willing to do 1980 again if they had to do it. Mm. Uh, you know, this, this is just like deterring uh, Putin out of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you say, well, there might be a, a, a severely worded memorandum at the United States Nations, he's not going to do anything. <laughs> he's going to do what he wants. Mm. You, have to, you have to show your missiles and be ready to use them. Not, not in the Ukraine case, but that's the analogy. And the Fed is not really willing to say we would be out there and, and if, if inflation gets to 10 percent, we'll do like 1980 again. It would be really painful. But only the belief that they're willing to do that keeps people from expecting inflation to really get embedded. And that's that's the biggest thing that they need to do. You know, I've, I've talked about a Volcker moment, uh, John, on the, on the TV show, and there's no Volcker. I've actually talked about a Reagan Volcker moment because Reagan said, you know, go on ahead and do what you have to do. Uh, and he did. And you're quite right. Um, if the inflation... I, you're, wait, you're exactly right. It takes both sides. I don't think Congress would let the Federal Reserve sharply raise interest rates, cause a recession, and keep it there for a couple of years, no matter how bad inflation got. Yeah. So it needs both sides. I suspect you're right. Look, your point, you wrote about the Fed noms, the Fed nominees. I've, I've quoted you on the air. It isn't that they're not qualified in some professional sense. They have degrees and they write papers. But you have to ask, you know, are they more interested in woke climate change than inflation? Uh, Are they more interested in, um, what was it, the paper you cited uh, from the Michigan State, Lisa Cook, uh, a credit analysis of small businesses in Russia? And, you know, she wants slavery reparations and, uh, she thinks uh, NASCAR people are stupid and, you know, it just and she wants unemployment. I'm sorry. She wants the black unemployment rate to be substituted as a metric uh, for the overall unemployment rate. This was written up well, by well, Larry well, Lindsay. I think I think we'd all like to see a low black unemployment rate. In yes. Fact, just just before the uh, uh, pandemic hit, we had the lowest black unemployment yes. rate ever. Yes. Uh, which is something to celebrate. Yes. Uh, now, whether you can. Uh, push that with uh, with Fed policy is another question. But this is the big issue here is not these personalities, but where is the Fed going? Is the Fed um, the regional Feds are, are spending more time on inequality and, and racial issues? I'm not sure that there's much the Fed can do about that other than other than nag the banks. 
to have DEI programs. But the, the big issue is the climate change. Mm. And, and Sarah Bloom Raskin, who's, who's an extremely qualified person, and mm. that's why I worry about her. <laughs> she knows exactly how to use financial regulation in order to tell the banks to stop lending to oil companies, try to starve oil companies out of the financial system. She said that's what she wants to do. That's what the whole uh, climate, um, the whole project to bring climate into financial regulation is about. And uh, and um, that, that, I think, is a, a dangerous overstepping of what the Federal Reserve ought to be doing. Do climate policy that our legislators are not willing to say on record and to vote uh, vote laws that they're willing to do, but, but sneak it in through the Fed. And not just good climate policy, the climate policy of starving, fossil, starving the fossil fuel companies, drive up the price of gas. That having the Federal Reserve do that is just a terrible idea. Well, let's see. So I think that, that we should be talking about that issue, um, and not just the people that embody it. Well, no, but I have. I mean, it, it's both. But yes. I, uh, I I have. And I, I've never said she wasn't qualified. I've never said um, Scott uh, Cook wasn't qualified. I, I just find her views abhorrent. Now, on the climate change, uh, John Cochran, you know, let's suppose – First of all, I don't think the Fed has a thing to do with climate change. You wrote a pretty good critique of that because uh, climate changes, you know, are 50 to 100 years. There's no immediate existential risk. But, you know, let's suppose they cut back. They forced the banks to cut back and the banks really forced the big oil and gas companies to cut back. You know, John, that what's that going to do? Cut supply, raise demand. That's going to jack up prices of energy, which will go right into the CPI. In other words, as a Fed governor, she's saying, I'm for more inflation, not less. Yeah, kind of hilarious that there was a proposal uh, in Congress to get rid of gas taxes. <laughs> yes. As if they hadn't been spending the last two years trying everything they can to reduce supply of gas. Look, <laughs> climate change is important. And, and where does almost where are all the emissions coming from? Coal plants in China. Uh, climate change is important. It's a long-term issue, and it has nothing to do with financial regulation. Mm, the yes. idea that there is some climate risk facing the financial system that's going to cause explosions in the financial system over the next couple of years, that is just made up as an excuse to let the regulators go in and kill the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, yeah. it was a great piece you wrote. Um, if the inflation rate is hovering, John, the, 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 the PCE deflator, personal consumption deflator, which I guess is the Fed's basic metric. Uh, the last 12 months, that's nearly 6%. Let's just use that for a minute. If the inflation rate hovers around 6%, John Cochran, what would your rules of thumb suggest about the Fed funds rate? Uh, well, if it if it stays 6%, then the Fed funds rate has to be at least more than 6% yep. so that it actually costs you something to borrow money. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we haven't seen interest rates above 6% for a long time. Now, the Fed's hope is that most of that 6% will go away on its own, so they only have to fight a 2 3 4% inflation. And uh, I don't know, hope, hope is a dangerous strategy. I know. It's, it's, it's like second and third marriage is a triumph of hope over experience. Uh, <laughs> John, let's assume... All right, I'll come down even more. Let's assume the basic inflation rate, I don't even know what that phrase means, but let's assume it's, it isn't 6 or 7 or 10, where, by the way, I think there's a risk it could go to 7 to 10. But let's assume it's 5, just for argument's sake. Is there anybody in the Federal Reserve System that envisions a 6 or 7% Fed funds rate to deal with 5% inflation? <laughs> 
Oh, I, I think they understand these principles uh, quite well. Um, they just have been very bad for the last couple of years at seeing inflation coming. So mm-hmm. they, they keep saying, as they did in the 1970s, you're old enough to remember it. Oh, yeah. it's just a supply shock. Oh, it's just a market causing a problem. Oh, it's just this, that, and the other thing. So they're assuming these are there is a one-time shocks that are going to go away. So they only have to fight a one or two percent inflation, or maybe three percent. Uh, but I think they all understand that if inflation is stays at five percent and is going to be five percent, they're going to have to raise interest rates to a good deal more than that. Risk a recession. Uh, it's going to be a political mess. But mm. the, the Fed certainly understands this is where they would have to go. They just don't believe they're facing that danger right now. Uh, John Cochran, one more, uh, the last uh, minute or so, your wonderful piece, infrastructure does not mean roads and bridges, apparently. I just love this piece. I've quoted this piece on the TV show a million times. Tell us about it. Infrastructure does not mean roads and bridges. I thought it did. I was surprised. I thought so, too. You know, we were sold this trillion-dollar infrastructure bill that was going to make things wonderful. Of that already – only about a hundred a uh, hundred million was sorry a hundred billion was going to be devoted towards what you and I think of as roads and bridges, and it turns out <laughs> once it gets through the administration that they said, no, we won't use any of this money to subsidize any project <laughs> that would increase travel lanes that might be used by by cars so you you literally cannot build any new roads or bridges worse than that you can't use the money in any way that would change travel patterns. <laughs> so you can resurface an existing road, but you can't change travel patterns. And I was thinking, you know, suppose our ancestors had said, well, you can build a transcontinental railroad. That's fine. But you can't change travel patterns. So only the same number of people can go as go on, on, on horse wagons. Are you kidding me? Hmm. So that's our modern infrastructure. Well, that's because what the regulators are doing to subvert the bill the federal highway yeah, regulators, nationally. You know, we, Trump administration, had pre, we, you know, we changed permitting through this NEPA, but they're throwing that out for Highway Administrators and uh, Endangered Species Act. They're getting around it, at least as far as roads and bridges are concerned. No, this is a great point. You know, people think we don't have money. We have tons of money in the U.S. The problem with roads and bridges is not the money. The problem with roads and bridges is getting the permits, getting it through environmental review, the massive bloat in how much it costs stuff, you know, billions of dollars per mile to build a subway. I mean, the French build subways at way less than what it costs us Mm. to build subways. Mm. That's the problem. Yeah, you guys did a great job. The environmental reviews are not saving the environment. They're there for people who don't want projects to be able to block them and make them more expensive and drag them out. This was supposed to have a limit on environmental reviews, and uh, and the administration said, no, we're going to just ignore that and put all the environmental reviews back in if you want to change the right-of-way at all or build new lanes or build new roads. So back to block, extend, let things go on for years and years. John, you're wonderful. Folks, you've got to read. The blog is called The Grumpy Economist. Uh, Dr. John Cochran is the author. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. John, thanks very much for giving us your time today. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, we continue Save America, Kill Inflation. Professor Steve Hankey of Johns Hopkins University will uh, help to enlighten us. Play 77 WABC. I'm Larry Kudlow. Save America, Kill Inflation. 7.5% inflation from the CPI. I don't see any end to it. In fact, I think it's going to go higher, not lower. We've heard from former Senator Phil Graham. We just heard from Professor John Cochran. 
Now we bring in uh, Professor Steve Hankey. He's a professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins University, senior fellow at Cato Institute. I have known Steve Hankey since the Gilded Age, I think, in the late 1890s here in New York City. How are you, Steve Hankey? I'm great, Larry. I, I still have fond memories when our offices were almost next door to each other in the Reagan years. <laughs> I know. That's great. All right, Steve, we've covered spending and interest rates and so forth. It is interesting to me, though, a number of people, um, most prominently, by the way, on Wall Street, Ed Hyman. Um, I had uh, Robert Heller. Remember Bob Heller from the Federal Reserve Board, Reagan oh, yeah. appointee? He's a great, great friend of mine. Right, brilliant guy. Um, I've gone back to my monetarist roots because – Not all cycles are the same, but the money supply has come back into fashion as a key determinant of inflation. Now, I I know you've uh, stuck with it these many years. I mean, I I follow commodities and interest rate spreads and things of that sort, but it just does seem to me that the money supply, whether it's the balance sheet, which we used to call the monetary base – that's the raw material of money, which is – I'm using M2 to make it real simple because it's available. Um, Steve Hankey, you're a, big, you're a big devotee. I mean, m- rapid money leads to high inflation, basically. Tell us about it. Okay, Larry. Um, it, it, Briefly, it, it succinctly. It certainly does. And, and kind of as a segue, uh, you know, my good, good friend John Cochran, you just had him on. I was listening to him. And – John was only talking about interest rates, mm-hmm. the Fed funds rates, and and it, he's just got it wrong. Uh, it's not about interest rates. It's about the money supply. And if you want a, a good piece on this, is something that uh, John Greenwood, the former chief economist at Invesco in London, uh, was at a talk in Tokyo in September of 1969, and, and the talk was given by Milton Friedman, and uh, John transcribed the thing, and we resuscitated it, and I published it on the Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Held in the Study of Business Enterprises, Studies in Applied Economics series in June of last year, and Milton Friedman explicitly says interest rates are a very poor indicator for the stance of monetary policy. It's only about the money supply. So let's let's talk about this for a minute. It's the quantity theory of money, as you know, and and that's been around for a long time. It's it's had legs for a tremendous long, <laughs> length of time. Uh, It started in the mid-16th century. A Frenchman, uh, John Bodine, was the first one. But all the great ones have used it. I mean, in the 17th and 18th century, Locke and Hume used the quantity theory. Then we had late 19th century Irving Fisher, great American economist. And then the the 20th century, of course, we had Milton Friedman. And, And where are we with Powell and the Fed? Powell and the Fed... 
has indicated we have to unlearn the quantity theory of money. This this was in testimony that Powell gave in February of 2021. He said we have to unlearn that there's a this notion that there's a tight link between the growth in the money supply and inflation. He actually said in a back and forth with Senator Kennedy from Louisiana in that testimony, an astounding thing, and I'm just quoting here, the growth of M2, the money supply, doesn't really have important implications for the economic outlook. I mean, this this is just a fantastic statement. It means that the money supply, the only thing that counts, is not on Paul's dashboard. It was on Paul Volcker's dashboard. Yeah. That's that's why he got things under control. You know what? Let me interrupt for a second. Jay no. Powell last week, last week, said that uh, money supply models went out forty years ago. Forty exactly. years ago. So, exactly. and uh, by the way, they don't hardly punish. They don't hardly publish the money stuff anymore. I'm just saying, Steve, to to be concise, we're on radio here. Um, the Fed is not looking at one of the key determinants. You're saying the money supply, M2, the quantity of money, is the principal cause of inflation. Okay, I don't know if you're totally right, but I think you're right, okay, whether you're 70% right or 90% right. Larry, I'm totally, all right, I'm totally. I know. I forget I'm talking to Steve Hankey, who was always totally right. No, it's good. It's okay. I've known you a long time. You know, Larry, in, in July. But Green look, I was trained. Up. I was trained by Carl uh, Brunner at the University of Rochester. Okay. You, you got you got the right training. So I started as a monetarist. Now, I, I want to raise. Uh, we're going to keep you over after. we we got two minutes here. And if you will stay for a few minutes after the break, you come back on. You t- I certainly, I certainly will, Larry. Right. I'm just starting to roll. I know you're going to do three hours. I can't quite do that, but <clears throat> it's okay. I appreciate the spirit. Let, let me slide <laughs> in one thing. Paul, Paul, and the Fed are flying blind yeah. without the money supply. Yeah. And that's they a key point. One of the biggest, the biggest errors in the history of the Fed has just been made. There's one word to describe it: incompetence. Yeah, short side. Jim Bullard at St. Louis. Still looks at it. Um, and his guy, Chris Waller, is on the Federal Reserve Board. That was my recommendation for President Trump, and it got through. But here's a point, Steve. I, you don't – it's funny. In a common-sense way, you don't have to subscribe to every <clears throat> complex quantity theory of money, MV equals PQ and so forth, You don't to, to know – that the money supply has grown at 40% in the last two years, okay? And the balance sheet, which we used to call the monetary base, has increased by um, five, no, almost $6 trillion. In other words, Steve Hankey, we've never seen anything like this. And that's a reason you can't ignore it. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a Professor Steve Hankey to know that this stuff, which has a history, if you've described it, a Milton Friedman Nobel Prize winning history, et cetera, et cetera, you just can't ignore this because of the size. We've never had anything like this. That's the point I'm making. You, you, you've got there. Uh, you and I completely agree on that. Now, Larry, you, you mentioned the important thing that the, the last uh, Paul said that the last 40 years, this relationship. Hang on to it. 
Steve, hang, look, stay with us. Stay, okay. I'm going to let you unleash on the other side of the break. You're going to have completely unleash, fire all the bombs, save America, kill inflation. Professor Steve Hankey of Johns Hopkins. I'm Larry Kudlow. We will be back after this. Thank you, Steve. Rudy Giuliani here for Monetary Gold. America is now $30 trillion in debt. Think about that, $30 trillion. Your great, great, great grandchildren can never pay that back. Democrats are looking for revenue to help finance their multi-trillion dollar climate and social welfare programs. Fox Business reported that the IRA is under attack. CNBC says that the government already owns a piece of your traditional 401k or IRA. Retirement funds are in the crosshairs by Dems who want access to the estimated $21 trillion in retirement accounts. There's one way to protect your money. Diversify into gold. Call Monetary Gold at 1-888-204-2141 and get their free protection guide. They're giving up to $5,000 of free gold and silver to the first 12 qualified callers. Monetary Gold is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau, a top five gold company on consumer affairs and has been in business for 20 years. Call 1-888-204-2141 or visit MonetaryGold.com. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Save America, kill inflation is our topic. Our guest is Professor Steve Hankey. He's a professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins University. He's a senior fellow at Cato Institution. Uh, Steve, thank you for uh, hanging around for five or six more minutes. We appreciate it very much. Um, M2 has grown about 40 percent in the past two years. And it's actually, it, it's slowed a bit, but it's still growing at 13% for the past 12 months uh, through December. I don't think we have the January numbers, and yet maybe we do. What does that tell you about the future inflation rate? Well, it, it tells you the following thing. There, there's something you can calculate uh Quite easily, actually. Uh, You mentioned the equation of exchange, MV equals PY, Larry, uh, before the break. PQ. PQ. Yeah, well, I use the income form form that Milton Friedman used. I I use a Y instead of a Q. Q, M is money supply, V is velocity, P is the price level, and Y is real economic activity, real GDP. So at any rate, what we have is M2 now is growing actually at 13.1%. And if you use that equation of exchange, a quantity theory of money, plug in the right numbers, solve the equation for the following target for the Fed, 2%. Let's say they wanted to hit 2%. How fast would the money supply have to be growing? It would have to be growing at around 6 6.5%. It's now growing at 13.1%. It's growing even now that it's slowed down, Larry, twice as fast as it should be growing if you wanted to hit 2% target, which is their target. So so we, we've got a real problem on our hands. If you look at this 40% uh, percent increase that you mentioned, Larry, about 25% of, of that uh quantity increase, that huge historic increase that we've had, has drained away through two drains. One, it it drains out to accommodate real economic activity. Two, it drains out to accommodate increases in the demand for money. So you're left 
in kind of the monetary bathtub with what? You've got a, a volume, a 30% increase that's left after these drains have occurred, and that will eventually go out into inflation. And that takes about 12 to 24 months before that excess money, that 30% of the growth, goes out the overflow valve into inflation. So that's just starting now. This, this is all in the tub already. There's mm-hmm. nothing we can do about it. And we still have the, the faucet is still going about twice as fast as it should. So we will have inflation of 6%, maybe up to 9% this year, next year, into 2024. Mm-hmm. It's already in the tub. It, mm-hmm. It's going to happen. Now, people say, well, how can you say that, Hanky? Uh, and how, how do you know that this is going to happen? It's the equation of exchange that we went through, that MVPY thing. And Greenwood and I, I wrote a piece in the July Wall Street Journal where everyone thought we were, we'd were we lost it. We said that inflation now, right now, Larry, we predicted in July that inflation would be 6% and maybe as high as 9%. Yep. We, we, and, and we wrote that way back in July. We were, uh, I think, the first ones to start forecasting with an exact number. Well, I picked up on it. I, now, I, I'm, I'm telling people, it's funny, you say 6 to 9. I've been saying 7 to 10. Uh, let's call it, you know, uh, that's a push. It's essentially the same thing. And the thing yeah. is, you know, Janet Yellen says it's going to be 2% by the end of the year. Uh, the point is, this inflation is going to be uh, continuous. It's going to stay at these levels. Monetary uh, lags are long and variable. You're looking at a couple more years of this. And I don't think anybody gets that. I mean, I don't think anybody in this whole government, Treasury, Fed, White House, you name it. I don't think Wall Street understands that. There's no magic here. Wall Street doesn't understand it at all. The bond market's completely mispriced. I mean, even now, if you look at the the bond market, is even now pricing in end-of-year inflation around 3.5%. Well, it's already 7.5%. I mean... But it's amazing, this supply chain thing. Let me make a very important point, I think, Larry. If you read the newspapers, you will find nothing about money supply and inflation. Nothing. You'll talk about supply chains, all kinds of ad hoc reasons for why we supposedly have inflation. But if you look at someplace like Japan, the inflation rate at the end of the year was 0.8%. Switzerland, inflation. 1.5%. 1.5%. China, end of the year inflation, 1.5%. Those three countries all have supply chain problems just like we do, mm. but they have low inflation because they have low monetary growth. They, they're controlling the growth in the money, money supply, and they don't have this big excess. Now, another little thing, you're raising well, so many points. Let, let me, let me get much. back to the Jay Paul. We don't have Jay much. Paul. We don't have much time. We don't have much okay. time. But okay, look, fine. let me ask you one thing. Uh, yeah, go ahead. The Fed's got to start draining reserves. They've got to start shrinking their balance sheet. Instead of buying bonds, they have to start selling bonds. Uh, in monetarist terms, they've got to substantially reduce uh, the growth, actually the level of the monetary base, in other words, un, unless and until M2 growth starts coming down significantly, 
this problem won't be solved. And Steve, uh, I'm watching broad commodity indexes as an indicator. In other words, if they start bending down, and they're not, by the way. In fact, they're picking up steam in the last month or two. But if they, I would use that as a target, price target. In other words, if you, if your model is correct, just in generic terms, I'm not interested in the point estimates, but directionally, you know, a, a, a decline in M2 growth, shrinkage of the monetary base, we should see oil and commodities start to come down. But we're not seeing it. That's the problem. We're not seeing it. Exactly. This this is how you marry supply-side economics, what we used to call supply-side economics and monetary economics. Yeah. Yeah. The supply-side, the, the, the monetary is the Q, and, and, the, and the prices are the P. You have to mind your P's and Q's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Steve, thank you. That's pretty good for an academic. You know, I think our listeners – might have understood part of that. <laughs> but I happen to think you're on the right track. I think Jay Powell has just missed this completely. And I mean, I think we're in tough times. Inflation's going to go continue, may even go higher. Interest rates are going to go higher, market rates. This will not end well. This will not end well. And it'll take a couple of years. Anyway, Steve Hankey, Johns Hopkins, thank you, my friend. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. Uh, save America, kill inflation. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Business News, the name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. Great fun. Um, update on Ukraine. It is reported that uh, Joe Biden spoke with Vladimir Putin this morning and the Biden call with Putin has ended. That's the reports. Uh, that's coming out of Fox News right now. Nobody knows what happened on the call, uh, they'll probably issue some kind of statement, Lord knows. I don't know whether they'll tell us the truth or not. I don't know whether Biden put the wood to him. Biden should have told him, uh, that's it, uh, we're taking you out of the uh, dollar-based banking system. But I don't know that, and all I know is the reports from Fox News is that the Biden call with Putin ended. All right, that's some breaking news. Fox News alert. Now, let us turn to the stock market and the economy. Stocks were down 500 points yesterday on the Dow. They lost 352 points on the week. The Nasdaq dropped 307 on the week. The S&P 500 broad index dropped 82 on the week. Stock market, I mean, it's in a it's in a corrective mode. It hasn't gone up. It hasn't gone. It sort of stopped rising. Year to date, let's see. The Dow's off four percent. The Nas is off twelve, and the S and P five hundred is off uh, seven. Oil prices are uh, very high, creeping back up there. West Texas crude finished the week at ninety three dollars. Uh, European Brent crude finished the week at ninety five dollars. None of that's too good. Gold is having a rally, eighteen hundred and sixty one dollars. It was up three percent last week. Uh, that's not good either. Uh, the dollar index, the uh, DXY dollar index, has been pretty steady. It's around 96. So the dollar is not collapsing. And the uh, five-year tips implied inflation, the break-evens, uh, two, 290, 292. Anyway, that's my take. We have Michelle Girard, Managing Director, Co-Head of Global Economics at NatWest Markets. 
And Jim LeCamp is the Senior Vice President for Investments at Morgan Stanley, two of the best uh, there are. Michelle Love, thank you for coming on, giving us some time. Um, Thanks for having me, Larry. Such uh, a week. Anytime. So much to talk about. I know. Everything's happening. So, um, <laughs> you know, save America, kill inflation. Uh, you, you can't, I mean, Michelle, you can't have a zero Fed funds rate and a 7.5% CPI. And even if you go to the PCE deflator, which I know is the broader gauge in the Fed's gauge, uh, that thing, the last read, I know we're a month behind, but through December it was about 6%, as I recall. Yeah, I was going to say, there's not that much daylight between CPI and PCE at the moment, the right. two measures that we all look at exactly. So um, the fly in the ointment, the monkey wrench, whatever metaphor uh, that my old brain can come up with, you cannot have a zero funds rate. You cannot. No. <laughs> okay. And you know what? These little bitty, these little bitty one quarters, come on, not even starting yet. And Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed says he wants 100 basis points by July. But I like Kevin Hassett better. Uh, Kevin and I thinking they should be doing 50 basis points each month until we see the commodity indexes bending down or some signs. And we just had Steve Hankey on the show. I mean, let's face it, the money supply, I know it's a old, but still, we've never seen money, M2 growth like this. We've never seen the balance sheet as big as this. So, Michelle, I just, I mean, I think we got some bumps in the road coming. What's your take? Yeah, I totally, you know, I agree. The Fed is, is uh, moving too slowly, obviously, and, and I think markets, expectations are still probably too low. The market is pricing in, you know, maybe 50 basis points in March and then, you know, a couple more 25 basis point increases. There is definitely, in talking to our customers, a feeling that if they do if they do raise interest rates a hundred basis points by the middle of the year, they may I mean I had people saying they may have to reverse course in the second half of the year. They believe that that's going to kill the economy um, or force the Fed to you know to back off a retreat I, I or you know a reverse even and I just think that there's this you know I just think people are not appreciating the persistence I agree with you um, you know about the persistence of inflation I think it's it's not going to come down very quickly I think it's going to be a real issue for the Fed they're gonna have to make some tough choices um, but you know looking Friday we had a survey the Michigan you know sentiment survey and you know it's it is impacting the consumer the, obviously we saw a hit to the overall sentiment numbers about six points eight out of ten consumers said higher inflation was the biggest problem facing the country, not employment. So, I mean, it, there is a an issue here in terms of what the Fed needs to be focusing on. And I, and I think people aren't quite, as I said, I think they're not appreciating that even if the economy slows, even if that, and that's a question, if that would even happen. But the Fed's got to be very focused because they're behind the curve and they've, they've kind of made a bed and now they've got a line. They've got to fix that. And they don't believe it. They don't yeah. believe it. Their estimates show they don't believe it. Right. Janet Yellen says inflation is going to be 2% by the end of the year. Uh, she's a very nice woman. She was a pretty good Fed chair, but she's drinking the left-wing Kool-Aid in the uh, Biden administration. 2% by the end of the year? Want to bet? Come and, on, want to bet? We'll get- and they think we'll get there by raising the funds rate to neutral. I mean, that's the thing, too, is, is you know, forgetting even sort of the – 
the near-term actions, um, you know, most market participants, I think the Fed, you know, they think just getting the funds rate back to neutral is going to be sufficient. I mean, we have been so far below neutral for so long, and look at where inflation is, and somehow just get removing the stimulus, like right. that you aren't going to have to go, you know, into a restrictive stance. I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I think it's just been so long that there's, you know, the memories are just too short. Most people in the market markets <laughs> haven't been through it like I have. And and so they just don't have a concept of How that. How about but... me? I lived through the 70s. <laughs> I worked at the New York Fed in the early 70s when I watched, this is a true story, and, you know, in the desk, uh, they used to have these green felt bulletin boards where they'd post key rates, including the Fed funds rate. And I remember, uh, I think it was 73, maybe it was 74, I don't know. Uh, I was working in open market operations in the research side, and I was upstairs during the call at 11 o'clock in the morning, and uh, they moved the Fed funds rate. It was posted at 9%, and this <laughs> nice woman that handled all that stuff, elderly woman, I can never remember her name, but she was a real sweetheart. Anyway, she takes down the 9 and puts up a 12, okay? <laughs> takes down the 9 and puts up a 12, that was 1973 or four. Now, Jim LeCamp, to you, the neutral Fed funds rate in this inflation environment is probably six, seven, or eight percent. Okay, how about those apples? Yeah, but here's the problem, and this is this is why the Fed has a really big problem. Raising interest rates is not going to fix the shortage in the housing market because there's still supply chain problems in uh, the lumber industry. Uh, D.R. Horton said they aren't building any two-story houses anymore around here because of supply chain issues. They're not going to fix the semiconductor uh, problem, the the semiconductor shortage, which is getting better, but they're not going to fix that either. The supply chain issue, and and they're not going to fix the the impact that the Biden administration has had on the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. So where's inflation coming from? Rents? Uh, and energy and the things that spill out from rent and energy. So raising interest rates, yeah, it's going to cool down speculation, and it'll probably hurt financial asset prices. I don't know that it fixes inflation in these critical areas. Right. Global goods orders is, was one of the big areas, too. Right, we're going to so, take – hold on. We're going to take a quick break because we're running behind. Please yeah. stay with me. We're going to keep you – we're going to give you all fairs, love, and war. Here's what you're missing. Where is this coming from? Too much – federal spending, and too much money supply growth. The Fed is accommodating and enabling the government. That's where it's coming from. Take a break. I'm Kudlow. Be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Save America. Kill inflation. We are here with Michelle Girard, Managing Director and Co-Head of Global Economics at NatWest Markets. And Jim LeCamp, Senior Vice President Investments at Morgan Stanley. When we left off, I was about to spank uh, Jim LeCamp for his <laughs> As you uh, always do. for his inadequate analysis. <laughs> Look, uh, I don't deny these specific micro issues, but the fundamental, fundamental, basic point here is that Uncle Sam was spending. We had former Senator Phil Graham on earlier in the show. Okay, this is one smart guy. Uh, taught economics for years and was the best senator 
uh, in the 1990s and 2000s. Anyway, uh, he is saying it's federal spending, uh, and by the way, the end of welfare reform into work, uh, no more workfare. We were spending 20% of GDP for quite some time, 20% of GDP for many years. Then comes the pandemic, and after the pandemic, I'm not going to say after the pandemic, but after the worst of it, the bills in December of 2020, $900 billion. April of 2021, $1.9 trillion. Uh, so, you know, call that $3 trillion. Two plus one is $3 trillion. And the spending hasn't stopped yet. So we're at 40% of GDP, 40%. And if that tapers down because some of these emergency programs do go away, you're still going to be at 30%. So I'm saying the following, Jim McCann. 30% of GDP spending, which is an all-time record, the money supply, M2, up 40% in the last two years, 13% still in the last 12 months, and the Fed's balance sheet, which is the raw material for the money supply, increased by $5 trillion. Now, that has created, first of all, they've enabled and monetized the deficits, and second of all, it's created excess demand. Excess money leads to excess demand. That has made the supply shortages worse. I'm just saying, until you curb the cause, you're not going to curb inflation. It's a pipe dream. What Yellen is saying, what Biden is saying, what Wall Street is saying, come on. You're not going to – inflation's – I mean, I think inflation's going to be 5 6 to 10% in the next year or two. Okay, I'll buy that, but here's the problem. While the money, uh, M2 money supply might be skyrocketing towards the heavens at an angle of ascent never seen before, the money velocity is shooting straight down to hell at a low level never seen before. And then you run into the problem of government debt to GDP. And you run into the Japanification of our economy, not to mention the fact that we have demographic issues that maybe don't look exactly like Japan, but they're in the same neighborhood, uh, same neighborhood as Italy. And you could be going into a long period of slow economic growth, which would just mean that we're heading for stagflation. And that's what I'm really concerned about. That's probably where we're going. Mm -hmm. That's probably where we're going. Although velocity is going to solve these problems by raising interest. Bank loans are going up. Bank loans are going up. So I don't think velocity is going down in the straight line. I don't think there's any automatic one for one correlation between money and prices, Michelle Girard. I'm, I'm just saying this in a, in a sort of common sense way. You had for about, I don't know, mid-80s until recently, and that includes the uh, Fed quantitative easing after the financial meltdown in 08. But if you look carefully at this, the M2 money supply has been growing very steadily at about 6 or 7%. And it produced, you know, an inflation rate of two. You jump that, you jump that M2 to 13% recently. And, you know, before that, it was growing at 25 or 30. It's just common sense. You say to yourself, this is new. This is different. This is more. 
and more money from more spending, you know, whatever the motives are, this is going to give us more inflation. What the exact number is, I'm not smart enough to you. Michelle, you're smarter than I am. You might have a better number. But, you know, these phony excuses uh, from Le Camp and the Japanese, <laughs> Japan and blah, 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 blah. I don't care what those guys do. All I know is money is going twice as fast as we've seen in almost 40 years. That's yeah. not good. Yeah, I mean, we've seen we've seen incredibly, you know, a real acceleration, obviously, in, in money supply. I think velocity is bounced. I guess maybe it's it depends on what you know what monetary measure you're you're using. The velocity numbers that I have have, have bounced a, a bit. You know, they've they've stabilized off of of the bottom. Um, and I, I guess I think the same as you, Larry. In of course, but I mean, but stepping back. You, you've had an inc- a period of incredibly stimulative monetary and fiscal policy, and and demand is is I think got plenty of fuel to to sort of continue to grow, mm-hmm. and I, you know and I don't think that that raising interest I mean the bigger issue is is I just not sure that raising interest rates is is going to have the certainly not as quickly as as the Fed would like. Um, I just don't think it's going to have the impact. Somebody said to, that that people expect. Somebody said to me, you know, the Fed was doing everything it could to lower interest rates to get inflation up. It didn't work. You know, what there's structurally there are things happening. Why do we think raising interest rates now are going to end up? you know, bringing inflation down so quickly? Like, are we not potentially going to setting ourselves up for the same head scratching that we had on the, on the other side, you know, where we sat through all this Fed easing in the post-financial crisis and we couldn't get inflation up? And are we now going to, you know, go through a period where even despite higher rates, because I, I don't think it's these, you know, I don't think there, there's a lot of things going on. The, the gains in inflation are too broad-based, I think, to pin on any right. one thing. I right. think it's something more fundamental. That's key, just what you just said. And I just don't know if it's a mindset change now. I mean, one of the reasons perhaps that inflation stayed low, curiously, quite honestly, in my view, I mean, I would have thought we had more of an inflation problem in the post-crisis uh, period, mm. was maybe this, you know, again, nobody believed inflation would go higher. It was kind of that. But but now that genie has been released from the bottle. And so my concern is, is that a very different mindset has taken hold, and it's going to be very difficult to, you know, to sort of get, you know, to get markets and companies and consumers to to sort of buy into, again, this idea that, that if, prices aren't going to, you if, know, if you had a, rise. If you had a diffusion index for the CPI, you would find prices are rising almost everywhere. Yeah. Right. I, how many prices are in the CPI, Michelle? 5,000? Thousands, but I, but, Thousands. but it's and then even at the highest, you know, at the higher categories, it's. I mean, at, at a higher level of category. I mean, as I mean, Jim, as you said, I mean, it's it's housing, it's the COVID things like airfares and used car prices. But you know, medical care was up a lot this month. Mm. Recreation services. I mean, I think the services side, it's been really goods that have driven inflation. The services side now is the you know economy, yeah. and then get into the summer and things. Yeah, but they're coming I, on. Services, yeah, prices, so, yeah, it's rent, it's used autos. Right. Uh, Take a look. J- Jim uh, LeCamp. Services aren't as much. Jim but... LeCamp, let me, let me, here, I'm going to teach you something. If inflation is tapering down, you're going to see it in important market price indicators. Correct. Okay, I had, Michelle, you'll love this. I had Bob Heller 
on the show last night. He was Reagan appointee to the Federal Reserve Board in the 80s with Wayne Angel, who's our all our dear friend, and Manley Johnson. And they operated a price rule. And Heller laid it out brilliantly last night, very succinctly. He said, money supply is, is growing too fast. That's why the commodity indexes are still rising. We had a little bit of a pause at the, I guess, the end of 2021. But now, year-to-date commodity indexes, I'm looking at the CRB spot commodity index, the thing's taken off again. And the Bloomberg commodity index has taken off. So Jim LeCamp, uh, what, I, don't, you know, whether, I don't really have that much interest in Japan. I'm looking at dollar-based commodity price indexes, and they are showing that inflation is getting worse Worse. Uh, I agree. They are. And I think they're, it's going to be stickier than ever, than most people think. I agree with that. Okay. Uh, what I'm saying is that they better be careful about raising rates too much because raising rates isn't going to fix these supply chain mm-hmm. problems. And raising rates is not going to fix the energy problems. I tell you one thing that is uh, going to uh, uh, start to uh, impact inflation, and Ten that seconds. is personal savings rates. Ten seconds. Jim LeCamp, are you buying or selling? Jim Jim LeCamp, are you buying or selling? One Uh, word. Selling, except I'm still very long on energy. Michelle Girard, bonds (laughs) over 2% permanently, 10-year? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't prove it, but we're heading over 2%, and we'll we'll stay there for the next, I think, couple years. 2% hell, we're going to 3%. Thank you, kids. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, we're going to 3 and sky's the limit. Thank you, kids. You're both great. Michelle Girard, Jim LeCamp. My uh, compliments and respects to the great government of Japan, their American ally. <laughs> their economic story has nothing to do with ours. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We have a truncated version of money in politics, but we do have Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and Hill columnist. And we do have Steve Moore from FreedomWorks Committee to Unleash Prosperity. His latest book is Gubzilla how the relentless growth of government is devouring our economy and our freedom. Uh, thank you, kids, and thank you for your patience because uh, of this Iranian, uh, Iranian, Ukrainian thing. Could be Iran. Um, Liz Peek, I go to you first. Uh, I had former Senator Phil Graham at the very top of the show, and he wrote a memo to his key contacts in the you know, Republican side of the House and Senate. And his basic point was to curb inflation. Uh, we need to do, one, a spending pause, and we need, two, to go back to welfare reform with workfare. So, Liz, your article, GOP, Don't Fall for the American Competes Act, is very timely. It's now a $350 billion bill, which would make us more like China. So... You're spot on. Tell us some more, please. Well, I'm shocked to find a lot of people haven't even heard of the America Competes Act. And the problem is, as it gets married up with the Senate-passed version of the same bill, it could get even bigger. It's not paid for. It's a bill that advertises itself, uh, Larry, as making American suppliers of crucial uh, components like semiconductors more competitive with China. What we're really doing is just subsidizing what turn out to be semiconductor companies, the most profitable companies on no. earth. I have no idea why we are spending tens of billions of dollars. By the way, it's a small portion 
of this $350 billion package. As always, Democrats have stuffed a lot of stuff into this bill from the Green New Deal and from the PRO Act. Uh, it's a really messy bill, but but this this core premise that we taxpayers need to fund expansion by the likes of Intel, which is already spending tens of billions of dollars to build new plants, it's really nuts. Steve Moore, three thousand pages, three hundred and fifty billion dollars to make America more like China, right? State controlled, subsidizing more like China. Um, and here's the thing, Steve, uh, 18 Republican, I might see the 16 or 18 Republican senators yeah. voted for it, which I find really grotesque. Me too. And I, I apologize because this bill kind of flew under the radar screen and I, I should have been paying more attention to this. Uh, you know, 350 billion, what's 350 billion these days when they want to spend exactly. trillions on this and trillions on that. But it is an awful, God awful bill. I, I did read Liz's column. She was spot on. And I'll just tell you a very quick story. When I first came to Washington and I think 1983, you probably remember this, Larry, it was, you know, uh, right before the Reagan boom. And do you remember it was all about national industrial policy? Yep. We had to yep. do what the Japanese are doing. Yep. We've got to have massive government subsidies yep. for all our industries to compete with Japan. And Reagan, thankfully, said, hell no, we're just going to cut taxes and cut regulation. Yep. And then we had the biggest boom ever. So this is just national industrial policy. It is corporate welfare, and it has no place in the federal budget. It is a god-awful bill. It's simply going to make our companies – dependent on government. And one other quick point, when companies are subsidized, they do worse. You know, I actually think the wind and solar industry would probably be better off today if we hadn't given them $150 billion because they just become addicted to government aid. That's a great point because government aid is not tied to profitability. Exactly. It's tied to political connections. Right. And that's a really interesting, good point. I mean, Liz, to go back to this, I we talked about it on the – uh, TV show. Uh, I'm trying to get, you know, support. I think if Steve is willing, we should put it in the agenda for, uh, you know, our Save America coalition. Yes. I mean, yes. we got we have Save America kill the bill. We have Save America now uh, kill this competes bill. And I think Save America kill inflation. So there's a pretty strong agenda. But Liz, you know, more generally, what Phil Graham said we need a spending pause and a welfare reform is very interesting solution. I mean, we can talk about the money supply and the balance sheet and all that, but putting that aside for a minute, um, better to have a continuing resolution, which would spend at Trump levels going back to 2020. If they went to a appropriations, which they haven't done in the Senate yet, um, the current services baseline shows uh, over two trillion more in debt over the next um, 10 years, it would be a 16% increase. So Phil is saying stay with the CR and then try to work on workfare reform. Yeah, I, I mean, I think both of those things are very good ideas. It's hard to restrain Democrat spending. So the CR uh, solution is probably the best that there is. Just, you know, don't allow any more appropriations. For heaven's sakes, don't allow any more big bills. And I just want to say one thing about the senators, the GOP senators that signed on to the Senate bill. 
it was a very it's a very different bill. So when they get combined, then let's look at you know what who votes for what. But don't equate the two because they are not the same kind of bill. They had a lot of things in there that uh, fell out. Um, but secondly, on the on the workfare, we all know that one of the biggest shortages in America right now is workers. Uh, we all know, thanks to Steve's and other people's really good work on this, that the uh, tremendous benefits, which, by the way, continue. I mean, people aren't paying attention to the moratorium on rent, the moratorium on student loan payments mm-hmm. and so forth. There's still payments out there being made. Keep people on the sidelines, make them uh, indifferent to going back to work. And that is a huge problem. So the uh, Obama started uh, taking the work re- uh, requirements away from food stamps and other programs. It was a big mistake. There is no excuse for it, really. It's just sort of mushy thinking. So I agree with him. I think that would be a wonderful thing. That's not going to happen in a Democrat-controlled Congress. Steve, we're still paying people not to work. That's the bottom line. We're, the unemployment unemployment uh, compensation may be gone, but we're still paying people not to work. And if people don't work, we will produce less. And if we produce less, we'll have even more uh, too much money chasing too few goods, which is inflationary. So one of my favorite economists named Larry Kudlow has said many times that, and you're so right about that, this, there is dignity in work. Yes, thank <laughs> you. People who work thank are you. happier, they're healthier, yes. they're yes. financially more secure. We're not doing a favor to these folks who are living on welfare and watching Netflix. I mean, come on, we've got to get people off the couch, back in the workforce. COVID is basically over now, at least this wave is long past. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no reason why able-bodied people shouldn't be either in a training program or in a in a working or on a job. And, you know, the American people are 80 percent of them are with us on this. Yeah. Yes, we want a safety net so people don't go hungry or lose their home or or face other deprivation if they lose their job. But the idea is to get people back into the workforce as quickly as possible. We're doing just the opposite. Think about this. It's been two years now that a lot of people have not worked. Two right. years we've helped people out of the workforce. Um, let's speak. We don't have a heck of a lot of time, but I'm reading a, a lot of blue state governors and many, many others, but they're starting to loosen up on the mandates uh, for COVID, um, whether it's schools, vaccinations, masks. But Liz, is it? I throw it out to both of you, but is it really true? Because these statewide, like here in New York, Governor Hochul, is ending the um, mask mandate uh, in public places. But then she says she leaves it up to the counties and the cities. So like New yeah. York City still has it. So it's like a phony, phony thing. Yeah, no, it's it's having your cake and eat it, too. She doesn't want to be tarred uh, by New York voters for keeping all these restrictions in place. But, you know, in New York City, it's pretty hard to figure out why anything's changed or how anything's changed. And she can get away with that by... Uh, allowing local authorities to make all the the hard decisions. I don't think they are hard decisions. I think this pandemic is in the rearview mirror. Mm. Uh, Voters clearly feel uh, that these restrictions are not necessary any longer. And look, if people want to continue to wear two masks and walk around in a hazmat suit, you know, God bless them. Let them do it. (laughs) It doesn't matter to me. But don't impose that on me. And, you know, the other night we went to the theater it was great. It was the Music Man. I mm-hmm. highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Super fun. But everyone in that theater, I mean, there were Nazis at the door, oh. and they went through 15 times telling you to mask up. 
okay, I get it. If there's an b- outbreak, maybe they have to go dark, and that's horrible. But this is – it's too much, and right. it's gone on too long. We, we want relief. i got to leave it there, kids. I wonder if you can get a Savile Row bespoke hazmat suit to wear <laughs> to the theaters. Uh, Liz Peake, thank you for your patience today. Steve Moore, ditto. I know we ran late, but you're both wonderful folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Join us during the week. Fox Business, the name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. We will be back on the air, WABC, next weekend.